So I have to say that I'm, I'm really enjoying just digging into the book of Nehemiah. Um, I hope you've had an opportunity to, to take a peek at it uh, throughout the week, maybe read ahead a little bit, get into the story a little bit more. Uh, but we're going to continue on. Last week, we kind of covered some of, of chapter one and, and some of just really what, what the thrust of, of the, the whole story of Nehemiah is. Um, and we talked about dreaming, dreaming big dreams, dreaming God-sized dreams for us as a people, uh, for us as individuals, as a church, uh, to really seek out God's will and God's vision for us. Uh, we're going to talk about that some more, but we're going to dig into the story. We're going to take it a little bit further. So today I'd like to read just a few verses from chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20, and then I'm going to kind of get into some of what chapters 3 and 4 get into as well. So we'll, we'll cover some ground today. Uh, but hear these words from Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Honorite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historical right to it. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks uh, just for the gift of your scriptures that we are enabled to encounter you within these words. I pray, God, that you would speak to us today and you would guide us, continue to breathe life into us. All of this we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. So we're in this sermon series. Uh, we're digging into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're talking about rebuilding and reviving and restoring and all that we encounter within this story as we walk through it. Um, but we're highlighting some of the key themes that we find therein. But it's a story about a small remnant, just a small collection of God's chosen people who were just dreaming about God's restoration, about rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, and about them rebuilding and restoring their place as God's chosen people, the ones through whom God would redeem and restore all things. We're also talking about what it looks like for us to do some rebuilding of our own. What it looks like for us in and through Christ to build and to be an outpost of his kingdom. Because that's what we're called to, to do and to be as the church. But last week we talked about how before we can start the process of rebuilding, we need to have a dream. We need to have a vision a dream or a vision that can only come from God and that can only be accomplished by the help and power of God. 
And in order to receive such a God-sized dream or vision like Nehemiah, we need to fast and pray. Placing ourselves at the feet of our God and listening. This afternoon, we're going to do just that. Today, 3 p.m., the shameless plug. Today at 3 p.m., we're going to be doing a prayer walk. Um, and we're going to be praying for our church. We're going to be praying for our community, especially our schools. We're going to be praying for the world around us. And we're going to be seeking God's vision for how he wants to use us in building his kingdom in Ozark, Missouri. And we'll be asking the question. It's a big question. What would it look like for God's kingdom to be realized in our zip code? In our community, in our, in our schools, in our homes, and in our lives, what would it look like for God's kingdom to be realized? But as we move in that direction, you know, I think it's, it's important to know and understand what it is that we are really getting into when we start praying prayers like that. Because they can be kind of dangerous prayers. So, we get, so we're going to get into you know, what it is really that we will be getting into. So we're going to continue on with the story of God's work through Nehemiah and the Israelites. But we left off last week with Nehemiah, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia, held captive in this foreign land. And, and Nehemiah, having heard about the plight of his people in Judah, you see, only a remnant, a small number of Israelites had escaped captivity in Babylon. And we learn from the book of Ezra that this small remnant had made it back to their homeland, had made it back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, and they had rebuilt the temple there. Though it was only a shadow of the old temple that had been destroyed. And the people, they were floundering. And they were in shame. You know, they, they, they were some of the older Israelites, they remembered before they had been sent into captivity, they remembered the, the great, majestic, glorious temple, the dwelling place of God. They remembered the, the stature of their people and how they were, they were, you know, numbered, this great number, and they had power and prestige and, and wealth and all of these things. All of that was gone. Just a small remnant built this shadow of a temple. They were floundering and they were in shame. The city was still largely in ruins. Their numbers had dwindled. They were under constant threat of invasion and defeat. They had no protection from outside invading armies as the walls around the city were just decimated. So for three months... We, we, we read that Nehemiah's heart was greatly troubled after hearing about all of this. You know, he was still in Persia, living his lavish life as the cupbearer of the king, but he heard about the plight of his people. So for three months, he fasted and he prayed, seeking to hear from God what he was to do next. And after fasting and praying for these three months, Nehemiah received a message from God. He knew what he had to do. So he approached King Artaxerxes and made the case that he needed to go back to Judah to help his people and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So he left. 
And he arrived in Jerusalem. And after three days, he secretly inspected the walls. Secretly because he didn't want to tip off any of his his enemies, right? But after inspection, Nehemiah saw how bad things actually were. The walls and the gates completely destroyed. So then he set about rallying the people, this small remnant. He rallied them together and they got to work rebuilding. But throughout the story of the rebuilding, we keep encountering these leaders, these these foreign leaders who continue to express opposition to what Nehemiah and the Israelites were doing. We we hear about Sanballat, the Honorite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. And they all express their anger that someone would advocate for and help these Israelites. So they, they ridiculed them. They mocked them. And their anger and opposition only increased as the Israelites made more and more progress on the wall. And Sanballat particularly expressed his demay, ridiculing the Israelites, calling them feeble Jews. Now, I was looking into the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for feeble that's translated in English as feeble, it, it really denotes the withering of a plant or a people without hope. This is how he was describing these these Israelites, these feeble Jews. How could they, these weak, withering, hopeless Jews, rebuild and restore the great city Jerusalem? So it was throughout the entire rebuilding process, only it got worse, as Sanballat and, and the other opponents attacked the Israelites as they work to rebuild. So not only were they struggling to do the actual rebuilding of these walls, they were, they were also dedicating and dividing their efforts between building and warding off these attacks. These feeble Jews. When I think about this story, I think about the promise and the work of Jesus. Jesus' work is a work of rebuilding. It is a work of reviving. It is a work of restoring all of creation. And it's the same work that we are called to as the church, as the hands and feet, the body of Christ. But it is also a work in which we encounter a lot of challenges. You see, Nehemiah, he knew the promises of God. That the Israelites were God's chosen people. That they were blessed to be a blessing. That it was to be from their familial lineage that the Messiah would come to redeem and restore everything. So the rebuilding of the temple, the city, the walls surrounding it, and them as a people had not just temporal significance. It had eternal significance. Cosmic significance. In rebuilding, they were preserving the promise God had made them. Right? Walls protect. And they also separate. So the rebuilding of these walls would protect them as a people from invading armies, but would also separate them as holy people set apart for God's purposes. They were restoring their calling to be an outpost in the world and a foretaste of God's promise of restoration. 
You know, this is what the prophets in the Old Testament had foretold. I say foretold, I don't like saying foretold, because when you say foretold, we, we think that the prophets were like, had crystal balls and were like some secret fortune tellers. They were forth tellers, right? They, they were deeply, deeply uh, in tune with God and His will. And they could see the world as God sees the world. And so they would tell, they would prophesy, from that deep knowledge and understanding of God in the world. But this is what the prophet said foretold. The prophet Ezekiel tells of the, the one shepherd from the line of David who will forever be king over all the earth. In Isaiah, he tells of a, a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, from, from David's lineage, who will redeem and restore everything. He, this, this one, this, this shoot, he is the hope that will come forth in the midst of the world's desolation to make things new. Jesus is a realization of what the prophets foretold and of all that Nehemiah and God's people sought to preserve and protect. You see, in, in the rebuilding of the walls and of God's people, we see a prefiguring of the coming of Christ's kingdom in its fullness. You know, Nehemiah, he couldn't have known this. All he knew, he, he was preserving and uh, preserving God's promise, God's people. He was preserving their land, their temple, their place, their home. He knew that something more was coming. And so they existed as an outpost, an outpost of this promise. What Nehemiah and God's people were working, building, and striving for has come to fruition in Jesus and will be realized fully when He returns. You know, we often talk about how we're in this in-between time. right? We're, we're in the in-between in, in between time, the now but not yet of Jesus' work of restoration. Jesus has come, and with Him has come freedom from sin and death. With Him has come life and the promise of all things being made new. So in this in-between time, we find ourselves in much the same position as Nehemiah and the Israelites. In other, in other words, we, we have work to do. And this work, this rebuilding, is, is very peculiar work. And it doesn't happen without a fair bit of challenge and resistance. I think about this story. I think about these realities. I think about uh, what it foreshadows. And I often wonder what in the world God is doing. I wonder if maybe He should find a different means of restoring creation. I mean, the, the church? Really? The church? We all know what goes on in, in the church universal. We see all the ugliness. We see all the brokenness. We can't even agree as a church universal on just about anything. So the church, really? This whole kingdom building project that God is about, in my mind, seems really inefficient. Really inefficient. But that seems to be the way that God has chosen to do His work all throughout history. 
You know, we get a foretaste of this reality in Nehemiah. In chapter 3, chapter 3 is just this long list of the people who built, who rebuilt certain sections of the wall. It's just a list of all those who took part in this rebuilding process. And it's a very interesting list. Because in this list we find priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, district rulers, temple servants, gatekeepers, and merchants. People from every walk of life covering the entire spectrum of social and economic standing. That everyone, regardless of skill or rank, pitched in to work toward a common goal. But what I, I find most interesting is that there weren't any stonemasons listed. There weren't any foremen listed. No contractors listed. There aren't any even any, any sculptors who at least would have had some experience working with stone. You know, we probably would have done a heck of a lot better than those who actually did the rebuilding. No, instead it was this mixed up group of folks with no skill, no experience, doing the actual physical work of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And you think about who God has chosen, who God has used all throughout history. Everyone we encounter in the Old Testament, everyone we encounter in the New Testament, right? No skill, no experience, nothing that you should think that they were worth much even. People who had issues. People who doubted themselves. People who thought they weren't enough. God's work of building His kingdom is really inefficient. At least by our, by our standards. And sometimes I think that God might be better off using professionals with specialized skills to do His kingdom building work. Maybe people who are stronger or, or more capable. That's what Sanballat said and thought about the Israelites too. At one point, as, as Sanballat saw that the Israelites were making progress on the wall, he said this, he said, what are these feeble, withering, hopeless Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? In the now but not yet reality of the kingdom amongst us, though, everything's been turned upside down. The whole of the story of Jesus is the story of things being turned upside down. It's the story of strength through weakness. Of our Lord conquering sin and death through His own death at the hands of the Romans. Put to death as a criminal of the state. In his foretelling about the Messiah, I think Isaiah, he says it best. I'm going to read just a, a short passage from, from Isaiah in chapter 53. Maybe you know this. He says, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Then he says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Rejected. Despised. Psalm 119 says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By his wounds, we are healed. His weakness has conquered the world's strength. We learn through Jesus that a faith based on worldly power isn't really faith at all. Faith must rest solely on the strength and weakness of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Which, by the way, is foolishness to the world. Foolishness to anyone who is not in Christ. That a beaten, mutilated, first century Palestinian Jew could be the savior of the entire creation. Foolishness. And it was by his death that that restoration took place. But that's why the Apostle Paul can say that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before God. God chooses the church which includes this local expression of it here in Ozark, right? God chooses us to be an outpost. God chooses us to be a foretaste of his kingdom of love and mercy and justice and restoration in the community in which we are planted here. Can we, the church, Here in Ozark, Missouri, can we really bring stones back to life out of the the heaps of rubble all around us in our world and in our community? How can we help to bring about Christ's healing and restoration? Are we capable? Do we have the skill or the know-how? Are we strong enough? On our own? No. Only through the power of Christ and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When you think about Nehemiah, Nehemiah's efforts were not in vain. The efforts of those Israelites were not in vain. Our efforts in and through Christ to establish his reign of grace and mercy and peace and justice are not in vain either. We are called to strive toward God. Strive. Strive toward God. To participate in God's work even with the knowledge that it is God, not us, who will accomplish the work in a way that goes infinitely beyond 
what our human capabilities and resources could ever accomplish. You know, we don't see these things come to fruition often enough in our lives, I think. We might catch glimpses of the kingdom here and, the, here and there once, once in a while. But we don't see these things come to fruition often enough in our lives and community and world, I think because we are content to assume that that work is for someone else. Someone stronger, someone more capable, someone with more skill, someone with more know-how. But God has chosen who he wants to use, us. So I think it's time for us to own that calling and to start thinking and dreaming bigger. To, to dream God-sized, kingdom-sized dreams for our community, for our schools, for our homes, for ourselves. Dreaming God-sized, kingdom-sized dreams. I think I shared not too long ago about a parable that Jesus tells about somebody going to someone's house in the middle of the night, needing some bread, knocking on the door, approaching that door with shameless audacity. It's the words in the NIV. I love, I love that. Shameless audacity. Approaching Christ with shameless audacity. I think that's how we need to pray. To pray with shameless audacity. When everything's stripped away, when, you know, when, when all we have is, is, is who God is, then it's, it, at that point I think we approach Him with that shameless audacity. Nothing to lose. But to pray for Christ's kingdom, the big, big, dangerous prayer, to pray for Christ's kingdom to be realized in our zip code, in our schools, in our church, in our homes, and within us. And to pray for Christ to use us in realizing that. We're called to dream big. And we're called to get to the work of rebuilding. And to do so in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, all to the glory of God the Father. Amen.